announcements here. Um, I, as you know, my family and I were gone uh, and in South Carolina for Christmas, and we had a wonderful time with Angie's family. Um, and I want to say thanks to Matt and Will for covering all the bases while, while I was gone, while our, me and my family, I guess it was a couple Sundays ago when you uh, voted on just some, some financial things and some budget things for uh, upcoming year. And uh, so thank you. Uh, I just want to say thank you for that. I'm not sure exactly how to express my appreciation other than just saying thank you. Um, thank you very much. You, you've shown that you love Christ and that you love others um, by, uh, by your, your kindness to me and my family. So thank you for that. And uh, obviously we have appointed some new men to serve as deacons. Um, and, uh, but not all of them are here yet, so as soon as we can get all the deacons here on a Sunday together, we will uh, have an ordination service for them and uh, look forward to, to ordaining uh, those uh, two new, uh, Frank and, and Brandon, as uh, deacons here at Liberty. And then uh, we'll mention that our missions team is there uh, in Navajoa, Mexico, and uh, the Puga family had planned to go, or at least part of the Puga family had planned to go, but uh, just right before... Um, uh, they were planning to go. Uh, Jordan Puga's grandmother had gotten very, very sick, and they thought that she may pass away. And I just found out that she did. Uh, was it this morning or yesterday? Yesterday that she did pass away. And so we want to remember uh, the Puga family, and spe- specifically Jordan, um, as she um, uh, has lost her, her maternal grandmother. And so obviously they um, made the right choice by staying here and not, not going and, and uh, being part of that mission trip. So... Um, we're sad that they couldn't go and be there uh, for that, but we are glad that uh, they'll be able to be here and, and be part of their families um, uh, grieving uh, over these next few days. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to jump in uh, right where we left off. The last sermon I preached here was uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And this morning we're going to jump into a passage that many of us know incredibly well. Some of us are vaguely familiar with, and I think all of us need a reminder and a rehearsal of this passage. You may have walked in this morning, even before I get to the passage, before I read it, you may have walked in this morning and noticed that we have a little table set up down here and some trays set up on it, and if you have been a part of any church for any length of time, you already know what's coming. You already know that the partaking of the Lord's Supper is going to be part of our service this morning. Some of you come from churches and traditions where maybe this was done every single Sunday. I didn't grow up in a church that celebrated the Lord's Supper every Sunday. I grew up in a church where it was more like quarterly. My my growing up, the Lord's Supper was a pretty infrequent thing. It was probably three or four times a year. Um, Obviously, here at Liberty, we celebrate it on on a monthly basis, although we did it uh, for Christmas and then again uh, here this Sunday. I, my, my rough calculations is that I've uh, partaken in the Lord's Supper 212, 215-ish times. That's obviously a really rough number. So it's something that I've partaken in a lot in my life. It's something that you've partaken in a lot in your life. And God willing, as the Lord tarries and, you can, and I continue to live and follow Christ, it's something that we're going to continue to partake in a lot for the rest of our lives and and I, I'm afraid that for many of us, we, we, ha- we have a basic understanding of the, like why we do this. But, but I think it's just a kind of a tip of the iceberg kind of understanding. And I hope this morning as we study this passage together that God will deepen our understanding and deepen our joy in what we do together when we have this bread 
and drink this juice together. Okay, so your attention is with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in the city of Corinth, a church that he helped establish and found. And he says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. That means what it sounds like it means, right? <laughs> what I'm getting ready to talk to you about, I'm, kinda, I'm rebuking you. I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not commending you on what I'm getting ready to say. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and, and I believe it in part. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. He's saying, obviously, there's divisions because some of you are behaving very badly and some of you are following Christ. When you come together, it is, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And by the way, that's, that's where we get the title for this, the Lord's Supper. We're, we're taking it right out of this passage. When you come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Do you, do you despise your brothers and sisters and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Right? Imagine a parent looking at a child and saying, what am I going to do with you? What am I going to do with you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, which is broken for you, the Gospels tell us. Do this, part participate in eating of this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, that's the word preach, you proclaim, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now these verses kind of get our attention, right? These are, these are some scary verses. At least maybe initially they are. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and it's why some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand very clearly what you have for us in these verses. Spirit of God, help us pay attention. Convict us where we need conviction and encourage us where we need encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Look in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, when you come together. And verse 18 says, when you come together. And verse 20 says, when you come together. And verse 33 says, when you come together. And verse 34 says, when you come together. And so Paul is making a point about something, right? A very obvious point about something. There's this assumption that you as believers, you're the body of Christ. Christ is your head. You're going to come together. And when you come together, there's some things that you're doing that are, you need to be rebuked for. And there's some things when you come together that you need to understand in order to come together well. Now, this, this Christmas time, um, my family, we were in South Carolina, and we were with family essentially the entire time. And do you know what we did together? What we did together the overwhelming majority of the time? We talked, we laughed, we had a good time. But, but do you know what we did while that was happening? We did it in the morning, and then we did it in the middle of the day. And then we did it at the end of the day, and a lot of times there were times in between that we were doing these things. We, we ate together. Long, leisurely, delicious meals for hours and hours and hours. And we ate too much, <laughs> often. And then we'd kind of sit around on the couch, in and out of slumber. Eating, eating brought us together. We came, we came together around the table. Eating meals brings people together, or at least it usually does. Eating is something that we do when we come together, and, and, it, and it signifies, or it, at its best, it signifies our unity regarding something. On occasion, on occasion, you might know, like I have at times in my life, you might know the awkwardness of having a, a meal with people that you have a strained relationship with. Could be family, could be friends. It becomes, becomes hard to talk, unpleasant to talk. In fact, being together and being together at the meal actually highlights for you once again the disunity that you have and the disunity that you're experiencing. And it becomes uncomfortable. Some of you may have even experienced this this holiday season. And in, in Corinth, the city where these believers are experiencing this, this love feast, this Lord's Supper that isn't the Lord's Supper, Paul is writing to them because when they come together to celebrate something that's supposed to highlight their unity, they come together to, to actually create more unity the thing that they're doing when they come together is actually, because of their sinfulness, creating the opposite of what it's supposed to. It's actually highlighting the opposite of what it's supposed to. There's, there's disunity rather than unity that they're experiencing. 
because of this. The main point this morning from this passage, I believe, is this, that the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take together, so my, my whole sermon this morning is just going to kind of lead us right into communion together. The Lord's Supper is intended to bring us together with God and each other. The Lord's Supper is intended by Christ himself. It's intended to bring us together with God and with each other. So, okay, watch my hands here. When I partake of the Lord's Supper, it is, it's, it is um, highlighting and, and reminding me of my togetherness with God. Okay, so imagine a string, a line, connecting me to God. The Lord's Supper reminds me. I'm, we're going to take this and we're going to put it in our bodies. We're going to put it in our mouth and it's going to go in. And it's going to remind each of us, I'm connected to God through Christ. Now, if you have something connecting you to Christ, and you have something connecting you to Christ, and I have something connecting me to Christ, and you have something connecting you to Christ, do you know what that means for us? If Christ is our head, that means this, that we are together in this thing as well. Christ has not only connected us to himself, but he has connected us to each other. And some of us don't like that sometimes, right? Jesus is great. Church is tough. Like, that actually is true. It was true in Corinth, right? Some of us might look around and, and think, man, church isn't always what I hoped it would be. Right. Yeah, I mean, Paul is writing here. Look in the first verse, the very first verse. Let me summarize this for you. Let me, I'll read it first and then summarize it. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul is saying, I got a problem with you. You're doing more harm than good. When he says it's not for the better, but for the worse, he's saying, church, you're doing, you're doing more harm than good. Some of us have been part of churches before where the testimony, even in the community, is look out. I, was, I, was, <laughs> I heard several stories over the Christmas break of people you wouldn't know and churches that you wouldn't know of like, uh, deacons meetings going horribly, the pastor's daughter slapping the head deacon in the church lobby for something he said in a church business meeting. I mean, crazy stuff, right? I know others of you have stories of church business meetings coming to blows. Do we sometimes do more harm than good? Yup, we do. One of the very first churches that ever existed did. And Paul addresses it. Point number one, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their abuse of the Lord's Supper. See, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, we're going to see this even more clearly in the next point. The purpose of the Lord's Supper was to remember, to remember and declare unity. We're united to Christ and we're united with each other. Unity with Christ and unity with those who have unity with Christ. By the way, side note, this is why the Lord's Supper is only for Christians. That's why we say, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're not walking in obedience with him, please just let the elements pass by. It's not a spiritual snack to kind of make you feel good about things. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Instead, at Corinth, it had become something that was actually causing divisions I think often the Lord's Supper was celebrated at the end of a meal so the people would gather together and they would eat together and then they would have the Lord's Supper together. Except the rich people were bringing in expensive, fancy meals, right? They're having things catered from Ruth's Christ. 
right? And then the poor people are kind of watching and salivating while the rich people get drunk and the poor people are kind of like, hey, you know, we're hungry. A meal that had in, was intended to actually create unity and help the unity of the church was, was causing division. The poor people were neglected. The rich people were gluttonous and drunk. When the church gathers... There, there is a unity and fellowship because Christ has made us one. Christ has brought us together, and there is nothing else, there is nothing else in the church that is the unifying factor apart from Christ. Now, I know you all acknowledge that, but we need to, we need to think about that for a minute. There isn't anything else that's the unifying factor for a church, which means this actually unifies us in many respects with many of the other churches in our community. The, the only, it's the only unifying factor is Jesus Christ, not your political party. That's not the unifying factor. I know a Christian who voted for Joe Biden he will be in heaven. I don't, I don't know if Joe Biden will be, but my friend will be. And I don't mean that to sound disparaging. I don't, I don't know that he will be or that he won't be. But what I am saying is this. Listen, we're not gathered here this morning because we're conservative Republicans. The unifying factor is not if you like guns or because we think that there is a rapture or that there isn't a rapture or, or we deny evolution or we vote pro-life or we're a Calvinist or we homeschool or we're woke or anti-woke or fill in the blank. Listen, there is not, there is no other unifying factor. There is nothing else that brings us together for eternity. It is only Christ. And the Lord's Supper, I'm going to, I keep saying I'm going to get to this in a minute. I am going to get to this in a minute. The Lord's Supper is a declaration of that. I'm taking into me something that is symbolic in its nature to remind me that Christ is in me and Christ is in you and therefore we are united. Is, is Jesus, is Christ enough to bring two distinctly different people together? Can Jesus Christ do that? If he's the only central point, if he's the only focal point, if he's the only unifying factor, can he, can he unify people that are really different from one another? In the church at Ephesus, you would look out in the congregation and there would be Jewish people and there would be Gentile people. And as you know, those were the, 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 the racism between Jew and Gentile was as great, if not more, than any white, black racial tension in the United States has ever experienced. There were slaves and there were masters. When Jesus calls followers to himself, when Jesus calls his 12 to be his apostles, in that mix is one named Simon the Zealot, do you know who zealots were? They were the ones who wanted to take a sword and overthrow Rome. They hated Rome. They were the Jewishest of Jews. 
right? They were intensely anti-Rome and pro-Israel. Here was someone who likely had been trained to, to fight against Rome. And in that same group of 12, Jesus had also called Matthew a tax collector who had sided with Rome. He had betrayed his own people and sided with Rome. And so now here, Jesus, who's the unifying factor in this situation? Jesus is the unifying factor in this situation. And he calls two people that would have gotten in a fist fight in any other circumstance. They would, have, they would not have been together. They would not have been together. And Jesus says, I'm your unifying factor. Matthew, follow me. Simon the Zealot, follow me. You guys are following me now. And now you're unified. Friends, is there the kind of selfishness or moral superiority in your heart that there was with the brothers and sisters at Corinth? Do you look at the, the background of others or the theological standing of others, understanding of others or the current life choices of others and think that you are in some way better than others even in this room? If so, then you, like I, need the rebuke of Scripture. And there's only one thing that does that. There's only one thing that fixes you. There's only one thing that gives you identity. You aren't better than someone else. You aren't smarter. You aren't wiser. You aren't nobler. You aren't less sinful. You're not more honorable. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's what fixes you. You have Christ, and I have Christ, and that makes us one. Nothing else does it. Nothing else does it. And I know you're like, yeah, yeah, okay. No, I'm telling you, nothing else does it. I, I think in our world, um, in our setting, the political divide that we live in is one of the things that we feel the distinction highlighted the most, right? If you vote for a pro-choice candidate, I have, I mean, that's it. Forget about it. You're, there's no way... Right? So, so that's an incredible divide in our experience. And is it possible that Jesus can call two people who have different expressions of sinfulness together to follow him? I'm not saying that any of the issues that I've listed aren't incredibly important. I have personal strong feelings on everything I've named this morning. I'm not saying they're unimportant. But I am saying none of them are the central unifying factor for Christians. Paul is confronting their disunity. And he says, when you guys come together, what, 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 what am I supposed to say to you? You do more harm than good. Verses 17 through 22 highlight all of this. And it's well within the realm of possibility that we do more harm than good because Paul was confronting the Corinthians for something that's in the heart of each and every one of us. Selfishness and moral superiority. Not only do we sometimes create disunity, but sometimes we actually like it. We, we actually sometimes, even within the church and even with other Christians, we, we kind of like disunity. We, we like feeling like we are the moral high ground. Paul confronts this. God confronts this. There's a way to combat it. Christ has objectively accomplished this through his death and resurrection. The unity, that he, the unity that he won for us on the cross. He is 
the central focal, focal point. And he gave us a way to keep that concept in front of us at all times. He gave us something that is so familiar to so many of us that it's almost impossible for us to actually feel the, the full significance of taking a piece of bread and a tiny cup of juice, right? What is this? A little miniature, like this doll stuff, right? You can play with this with your dolls at home. What are we, what are we doing here? The, the, again, the point, the point isn't the amount of the bread that I eat or the kind of bread that I eat or the kind of juice. Is it wine or is it grape juice? Or Like those things are, th- that's not the point. The point is Christ, and he did live, and he did die, and he did raise from the dead. And he has given us something to remind us of our unity to him and our unity to each other. You know why? Because we are so quick to forget that we're unified with him and we're unified with each other. In fact, I would argue that maybe those are the first things we forget. The first things we forget is that I'm unified with him. I'm secure. I'm okay. He's got me. He's in me. Oh, I forgot that. But taking this little cracker and drinking a little bit of this juice reminds me I'm okay. He's in me. I'm secure. I'm united to Christ, not through anything I've done, but solely through his work on my behalf. And, and I'm actually, actually, I'm just objectively unified with you. Some of you I like better than others. Some of you I don't. No, I'm just kidding. I, no, I love all of you. But there are, in the world we live in, right, there's some people that we just jive with better than others. That's, that's okay, but I am unified with you. Number two, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And here's where in verses 23 through 26, he just kind of goes back and says, hey, listen, what I received from God, I told to you. And he, re- he rehearses what we know from, uh, from the New Testament in the Gospels. And, and uh, when, I, when we were preaching through the book of Exodus, when we came to the Passover, I spent some time talking about the Lord's Supper as well. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to keep the good news of the gospel at the center of our lives, to keep the good news about Jesus right at the very center of who we are and what we do. One author says this, Jesus transformed the Old Testament Passover meal into the celebration of the infinitely greater deliverance he came to bring, right? Old Testament Passover is celebrating God's deliverance of God's people out of Egyptian bondage and deliverance into the promised land. New Testament deliverance is God through Christ delivering us from the slavery of our sin. Jesus transforms the Passover meal into the celebration of an infinitely greater deliverance he came to bring, of which the Passover was only a foreshadow. We eat his body and drink his blood. We remember the spiritual and eternal redemption that he bought with the sacrifice of that body and the offering of that blood. The Passover celebrated the temporary physical deliverance of the old covenant. The Lord's Supper celebrates the permanent and spiritual deliverance of the new covenant. And there there are several words in these verses that remind us and tell us, here's the purpose. Here's what you're doing when you do this. We're remembering, we're partaking, and we're proclaiming. Those are words that are just straight out of these verses. We we remember, right? Uh, Verse uh, 24, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. We remember, we remember the work of Christ, that Jesus Christ was born onto this planet, fully God, 
comes in human flesh, fully man. We just celebrated his birthday. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life for you. The life you were supposed to live, keeping God's law. You failed, Jesus succeeded. He lives a perfect life for you. He goes to the cross and the wrath of God is poured out on him. And he, he suffers the wrath of God that you deserved to experience. Jesus took upon himself. And three days later, he's resurrected as a promise that we too will be resurrected for those who put faith in him. We remember that work. We remember our sin that made that work necessary. That's kind of a humbling thought, isn't it? You ever mess up really bad? And then someone has to come in and fix your mess? And that's humbling. Right? When someone sees, ooh, Jeremy really screwed that up. Right? He tried to fix his car, and then I got to take it to Donald to both unfix what I tried to fix and then fix what was actually wrong with it in the first place. In fact, I don't even try fixing it anymore. Donald knows that. I just bring it, I just bring it to him. We, we remember the sin that we brought into this equation that made the work of Christ necessary. We remember the payment for that sin. We remember the work of Christ to, and when I say the payment for the sin, what I mean by that is this, like eternal punishment and separation from God in hell is the appropriate punishment for our sin against God. Still humbling. We remember the work of Christ to deliver us from that payment. Oh, now, now we're getting into some good news. This makes me happy. This gives me great joy. As I remember, I'm both humbled and I'm made happy. We remember the work of Christ to deliver us from the payment. We remember his broken body and his shed blood and his separation from God. We remember, but we don't only remember. That's not the only thing that we do. There are a lot of people who know those facts. Satan can remember what Jesus did on the cross. We not only remember, but we partake. And I could spend a lot of time here, and I'm not going to. We, we partake. We eat and drink. Jesus gave us. Jesus gave us a physical object lesson to help us remember. He took a loaf of bread, and he broke it. And he wasn't breaking it just so that he could divvy it up to everybody. He was breaking it to demonstrate, hey, look, this is my body. Break. This is going, it's broken, and my body is going to be broken for you. This juice is representative of my blood that I will shed for you. We eat and we drink, and there is so much symbolism there. We eat and drink to remember the body and blood that were saving, not to consume something that is saving, right? This is a difference between us and the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ. And we, obviously, Jesus on that first uh, Lord's Supper evening is standing there in the flesh, and he's distributing these things that are signs, they're reminders of what he is. hasn't even done it yet. They're signs and reminders of what he's going to do. And we, we partake in that, and we bring it, I've already made a reference to this several times. We put it in our mouths and we chew it up and we swallow it to remind us Christ is in me. Christ is in me. We partake. And then, and then part of this is we proclaim, we preach. 
We preach, we proclaim that we're united to Christ and he is in us. And every time that we do this, there's a little sermon going on. There's a little sermon going on in your seat and a little sermon going on in your seat and a little sermon going on in your seat, right? You've got this little piece of unleavened bread that we use and a little little cup of juice and, and everybody's got these in their seats, right? These little things and you're a little person and you're in a little seat, but you're proclaiming something, you're preaching something. I was so bad that I needed, I needed someone outside of me. I needed something beyond me. I needed rescuing. I wasn't going to be okay without, without intervention. And Christ is my Savior. We proclaim, we preach this again. We share in Him and with each other. The loaf was broken and it was distributed. And in God's wisdom, He has given us a beautiful picture built into a meal built into something that we celebrate regularly, something that we remember regularly. And there, there is no other meal like it. There's no other meal like it. There's nothing like the Lord's Supper. Thanksgiving is an awesome meal, but it's not like the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, Paul instructs the Corinthians how to prepare for the Lord's Supper. He instructs the Corinthians how to prepare for the Lord's Supper because there were some who were very unprepared there were some who were taking of it unworthily. Again, verses 27 and following. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty. They'll be guilty. And this is why many of you, verse 30, are weak and ill and some have died. Now these, these verses, obviously we read through these and we go, whoa, wait a second. Like, is that even possible today? Is it possible for someone to like not be right with God and to take the Lord's Supper and then to get sick or even maybe possibly die? I think so. I do think that's possible. I do think that's possible. But I also, so on one hand, I want you to hear me sounding a strong warning not to take unworthily. I'm going to explain that here in a minute, not to take unworthily. On the other hand, the reason we take it is because we're unworthy. You're never going to be so good as to think, you know what, I think I can let it pass this week because I don't need that. that so, so there's no such thing as being perfect and taking it. That's not what eating worthily means. I mean, the, re the reason we're going to take this is because we are in such desperate need of Christ in such desperate continual need of Christ. This idea of eating worthily. If anyone eats unworthily, if you, if you come and eat with anything other than love for God and love for others, you're eating unworthily. So, so if you come and you're not really thinking about this, kind of thinking about whatever, leftovers you're going to, or project you got to do later this afternoon, or, you know, it's just a mindless thing or you know that you're not in right relationship with God, that you don't know Christ as your Savior, or, or that you're walking in disobedience to Him. You're not loving God rightly. I'm not saying that you know that you're in sinless perfection. Uh, all of us can think back to sins that we've committed. That's not what it is to eat unworthily. To eat unworthily means I know that I'm, I'm holding on to sin, and I'm unwilling to let it go. I'm unwilling to repent of it. Friend, if that's you, if you've got sin in your life that you're holding on to, don't partake of the Lord's Supper. L let it go and get right with God first. And if you know that you have sin between you and someone else, 
let it go. Let it pass. It is not a sin to let the Lord's Supper pass. It is a sin to eat the Lord's Supper when you're unworthy of it. And it is a sin to just live for years knowing, ah, I'll just pass, I'll just pass, I'll just pass. Again, the point, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is to get you right with God and to get you right with others. It's a, it's a grace and a mercy that's built into this. If once a month I'm stopping and going, okay, God, is there any sin between me and you that I'm just holding on to and unwilling to repent of and God brings something to mind? Well, in his grace and in his mercy, he's built something into the rhythm and the life of the church that shines a light on that for you. And you go, oh, whoa, I've, I've, I've been living in sin. God, forgive me. And you can get that right. Same with sin uh, towards someone else. So first of all, we need to eat worthily. One of the ways that we come to eat worthily is by examining ourselves. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I right with God and am I right with others? Am I right with God and am I right with others? You're going to know pretty quickly. You, you don't have to spend two hours in deep, silent meditation to know the answer to that question. I think, I think most of us know pretty quickly. Am I right with God and am I right with others? This does not mean that there isn't relational tension. It doesn't mean that there's not trouble in your life, right? Many of us know what it's like to live and walk with unreconciled relationships. But as far as you know, between you and God and your responsibility to, with you and others, are, are you walking in, uh, in a right relationship with God and others? You could ask yourself, am I holding on to sin that keeps me from loving God and loving others properly? Brothers and sisters, understand this. To stop and examine yourself at every time we take the Lord's Supper, that's God's kindness. That's that Jesus gave us this thing to do together so that we will stop. And th- can you imagine? Like, like uh, it would be easy for me to go months without ever really going, you know what? How am I doing? How am I really doing? Am I am I obeying God or am I just kind of living? God in his kindness has given us a gift and a, a way for us to stop that he built into the rhythm in the life of the church where we go, okay, Lord, am I right with you and am I right with others? Eat worthily, examine yourself, and, and escape discipline. Now, this discipline here is it's, it's made distinct. It, Paul makes it clear that he's not talking about the discipline or the punishment that those who don't know Christ receive. Look at the end of verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Right. So he's making a distinction there. He's not talking about eternal damnation and punishment that the, the world will receive. But you can still be disciplined by the loving hand of the Lord. There is not a good loving parent who doesn't discipline their children for their children's own good. Friends, you may seek to be a good parent, but you're not omniscient, you're not omnipresent, you're not, you're, you're not all-powerful and all-knowing. Your kids are going to do things that you don't know about. But friends, we don't do anything that God doesn't know about. He is omniscient and all-powerful, so, so he knows. That's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I do think, is one of the stories where here they're Christian people, they're doing for the most part, good things, but they just overtly lie to God. They break the love for God and love for others. And God punishes them, disciplines them severely. 
So Paul instructs the Corinthians how to prepare for the Lord's Supper by eating worthily, by examining yourself, and by in, in, in order to escape discipline. And again, there's so much more I could say in each of these points, but uh, time doesn't permit us here this morning. Practically speaking, very practically speaking, what does this mean when it comes to take the Lord's Supper? Those who take the Lord's Supper, who's allowed to take it? Maybe that's a, a question to ask. Those who are born again, those who have turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ to be their Savior. I believe those who have been baptized, right? That's that first, the very first step of obedience is to be baptized. And so to be born again, but to refuse baptism is to say, I'm following Jesus, but I ain't following Jesus, right? So I would say to be born again, to be baptized, to be walking in obedience. That's what these verses are telling us, to, that to walk worthily, to examine yourself is mean, means that you're walking in, in general obedience. Again, please I just want to make it abundantly clear. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not talking about, I know that I have repented of every single sin I possibly could have committed. I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think what this is saying is, are you living in knowing continuous unrepentant sin to God or, or toward others? Are you born again, baptized, walking in obedience? Do you understand the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Right, to take in a manner that's unworthy would be to be, um, in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's not the verse that I meant to read. Oh, verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. I believe that verse means that you eat and drink with an understanding of what it is we're doing. So it's for someone who understands its purpose. And so you say, well, what about kids? What about kids? Are, are they born again, baptized, walking in obedience, and do they understand its purpose? Okay, so that, that's, there's not like an age or a, I think this applies to anyone. Born again, baptized, walking in obedience, and understand its purpose. And for the person who does partake worthily, it is because of the reality of those very symbols that they're partaking. If you're going to take in a worthy fashion, listen, if you're going to partake of the body and blood of Christ in a worthy fashion, that's because of the body and blood of Christ. Does that make sense? You, you get to partake in the beauty of this uh, symbolic object lesson because of the reality of the object lesson. You, you're made able to partake in this because what this illustrates happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus lived and died and rose again. And now here we have a reminder of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that we're going to partake in together here. And this will result as we, as we remember and as we partake and as we proclaim, it's going to have an effect on us. It's going to make us humble and happy and holy. You hear me use those three words often, right? Humble, happy, and holy. Those who understand the gospel and are walking in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others, it doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that their life isn't going to have stress or isn't going to have problems. The best Christians I know have lots of problems. But it does mean that, that there's just kind of this baseline, stabilized humility because I realize how bad my sin is and what God had to do to fix me. Happiness, I'm using the word happy on purpose, right? So you might say, well, really, it's joy. I agree with you. But happy has an H, and humility has an H, and holy has an H. That's why I'm using the word happy. I need, I need those. 
humble, happy, and holy. And the gospel makes you happy because Jesus did do this for us. And the gospel makes me holy because he has done this. I want to live not just on Sundays when we have communion, but I want to live every day in holiness and following Christ. So what do you do? In a moment, I'm going to have the deacons come forward and we're going to distribute the elements. What, what should you do during those moments? I must confess, I've spent a lot of times at communion daydreaming. Thankfully, God has not struck me dead. I don't th- I don't, again, I don't, think that's what, I don't think that's the kind of punishment that, that any of these warnings are referring to. He knows that we're weak, that we're but dust, that we're... But I do think that we can be intentional with those moments that we're getting ready to have. I think I have these on the screen, yeah. I'm stealing this from Pastor Eric Raymond. He says this, look up, look in, look back, look around, and look ahead. Look up. Look up to God. God has prepared a feast for us. Look in. This would be that component of self-examination. Lord, am I, am I walking in obedience and love toward you? And am I walking in love toward others? Look, look back at the cross. Oh, I literally have a cross behind me. Look back at the cross and consider what Christ has done for you. Look around at your fellow church members with whom you are proclaiming, I'm unified, we're unified. And look ahead to the marriage feast of the Lamb that will come in the new heavens and new earth. Father, I pray now as we partake together that we will do it worthily. And I'm thankful that we can do it worthily because your son Christ has accomplished the reality that that these symbols symbolize. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're actually going to sing. We're going to stand and sing a few verses of a song even before I invite the deacons up. Use this song as a way to prepare your hearts and minds for our communion time together this morning.